This morning, I want to talk with you about hope for tomorrow. Hope for tomorrow. Everybody needs hope. Everybody needs hope to live. No matter what your identity is, what your gender is, what your class and society is, what your age is, we all need hope. People who have lost a loved one need hope. People who have had life-shattering experiences, they need hope. Maybe somebody has gone through a divorce or somebody has gone through horrible rejection. Everybody needs hope. Maybe you are like me and we've made some really bad decisions in our lives. We all need hope. Some still deal with the, re the, the, the regrets of those decisions. Others still deal with the experiences or the consequences of those decisions they've made. But it doesn't matter who you are. We all need hope. Hope is not a psychological issue. It is a spiritual issue because our hope is rooted in the very character of God. Some have lost their health and they need hope. Others have lost their jobs. There are those who have lost their companies and their businesses, their finances, their money. They need hope. Finally, there's this group of people, this group of people who are lost in sin. They need hope for forgiveness and for eternal life. So it doesn't really matter who you are your station in life, your age, your gender, your class, your situation, everybody constantly lives in this life where they need to grab onto hope for a future. So that is our obvious conclusion that hope is the message all need to hear regularly from God Himself, from Scriptures. Not a hope that is just blowing smoke at somebody, but hope that is actually rooted and grounded in the very Word of God, which is eternal, immovable, and unshakable. This is where we get our hope from. Otherwise, it's not true hope. So how does hope affect you and me? How does it affect us individually? Well, think about it this way, that a person's emotions <clears throat> naturally respond to both hope and the lack of hope. It, your, emotions, your emotions are a response to the amount of hope or the lack of hope that you have. In other words, your level of hope or your level of despair determines where you are emotionally. When there's great hope, emotions soar. When there's no hope, depression and anxiety sets in. Therefore, a person's emotional state cannot be commanded. At will. I mean, think about it. Have you ever tried to counsel a person who is suffering with anxiety and say, stop being anxious? Oh, okay. You know, you can't command an emotion. Or you try to minister to somebody who's dealing with depression and you say, stop being depressed. Well, how does that help them? It doesn't. Why? Because your emotion is not commanded at will. But rather, your emotions are a natural response to the degree of hope or the degree of despair that you live with. So just as our lungs need oxygen to breathe, so your soul needs hope to survive. People's souls don't survive because of a lack of hope. So how does hope rise in a person's heart? Now, I've used this analogy before, but I think it bears repeating. Imagine with me for a moment this made-up story of a man, a father of, he's a husband, he's got children, he's very loving, he's very caring, but he's extremely reliable. This father never lies. This father, when he says he'll do something, always does it, and everybody knows him to be that way. One day he calls his son and he says, son, I have something to tell you, sit down. His son sits down, Johnny sits down, he says, yes, dad. And dad looks at him and says, you know, in, in three days' time, 
the end of this week, Friday night, your mother and I are taking you and your sister to Disneyland for an entire month of vacation. Well, this boy who knows his father never lies, hears his father give him that promise and immediately he believes what his father says. And the moment he believes what his father says, his hope rises in his heart for an expected end. Immediately he knows by the end of this week, we are going to be in Disneyland for a whole month. He believes what his father says, and that's why his hope rises. He has this great expectation of things to come, and suddenly he bursts with joy. He's all excited. He jumps up and down. He hugs his dad. He runs to his mom, and he says, thank you, mom, and he's so excited. Irrepressible joy and enthusiasm just bursts forth naturally from this hope that he has of what's about to happen. But this hope that he has about what's about to happen stems off of what? What he just heard his father say, and he believed his father's words. That's why he had joy, and he believes his father's word because he trusts his father's character. And so the same thing is true for you and I. Because we trust our father's character, we can believe our father's words, and because we believe our father's word. We can have hope for a future, and because we have hope for a future, we too can have great expectation, and, you, and this is why you and I, as the family of God, children of God, that's why you and I can stand in the midst of personal, relational, societal ruins filled with hope and great expectation, living above the situations and not underneath them. That's what hope is. This is where hope comes from. The ability to trust God's character enables you to believe God's words, which causes hope to rise in your heart. Therefore, great expectation for the future is yours. Hebrews 10.23 says this, let's hold, firmly to, let's hold firmly to the confession of our hope without wavering. Hold fast to your hope without wavering. Hold fast to your hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Here God is saying, you can hope over here because the one who promised you his character, he's faithful. So a faithful person can be trusted. That's why we can trust our God. And this is where your hope rises naturally. I always, um, I always would look at the TV when I'm watching somebody trying to get us to be filled with hope. And I'm always perplexed. I'm always trying to figure out, like, okay, you're telling me to be hopeful. I'm just trying to, like, be hopeful. Come on. Come on, Jacques. Be hopeful. Come on. And I just never knew where that stemmed from. But your source of hope is God's character. That's why, Dave, do you mind making one degree warmer? God's character. God's character. That's why we have to study God. You know, oftentimes when you say, hey, everybody, we're going to study the the character, the, the character of God, or we're going to study the attributes of God. Everybody's like, okay, the aseity of God. He always has been, always will be. But we don't realize the importance of that is why we should be excited about studying the attributes and the character of God, because when we do that, we, we get to know God better. And when you know God better, the God of the Bible, you know His ways, you know His will, you know His His you, you know uh, um, his strategies, you know all these things, about, you know his mind. When you know these things about God, now, when you know that he's immovable and unshakable, he's immutable, he does not mutate, he does not change, now you go, God, you said that, that's why I believe it. And because I believe, I now have hope. And everything changes for me. So it's very important for us to study the character of God, the attributes of God. But this morning, I want us to look at a verse that has perplexed me for the longest time, my whole life actually, and just lately became clear. It is 1 Timothy 4 verse 10. It speaks of hope in God, but it speaks of hope in God over two issues. And those two issues seem to contradict 
But these two issues that, that we have hope in God over, I want to read it to you, sound a little strange, but I believe that we're going to be able to clarify today. It says, for, it is for this we labor and strive. It is unto this goal that we labor and strive. We do two things. We labor and we strive because of this. He says, because we have set our hope on the living God. We have set our hope on who? Let's, let me hear you. We've set our hope on who? The living God. Yeah, He's alive. He's not dead. He's not, irris- he's, he, he's not non-responsive. He's the living God. And we've set our hope on this living God. Who, who is He? Who is this living God? It tells us who is the Savior of all mankind, especially of believers. He's the Savior of all mankind, especially believers. All right? So here is the conundrum. There are two categories here. Savior of all mankind. He saves all of man, especially those who believe. It sounds like he saves those who believe in a different way than he saves all of mankind. He is the savior of everybody, the entire human race, but especially those who believe. So there are two different ways of him saving people. At first glance, it looks like this verse says God eternally saves all mankind, which would include every individual that makes up the entire human race, now is saved eternally. That's what it looks like. Many read this verse and they conclude, as universalists do, that doesn't matter who you are, Muslim, Hindu, atheist, agnostic, doesn't matter who you are, Jesus has saved you. You're completely saved. Because he says he saved all mankind. That's universalism. However, we know that universalism is totally unscriptural. It actually doesn't filter throughout all of scriptures, right? You cannot put universalism through here because there are so many verses that it breaks. For instance, the Bible says many will take the wide road that leads to destruction and few will take the narrow road that leads to life, right? So it could mean that God saves all mankind eternally. He has to save them in a different way. The Bible also confirms over and over again that there will be a separation between goats and sheep. There will be a separation between the wheat and the tare. There will be a separation between believers and unbelievers. So surely, if, if there's going to be this separation, how is God saving all of mankind eternally? The Bible says that there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth in eternal darkness. Well, how is God saving all of mankind eternally? He's got to be saving them in a different way. When he said, this is the God who saves the Savior of all mankind. So if it doesn't mean saving all mankind eternally, what does it mean? So this will really bless you, by the way, if you grab a hold of it. Um, Because it clarifies so many portions of scriptures and it gives you hope for this life that you're living in. Many people read the Bible and they, they claim that there's a fatalist undertone within God's providence of you. There's this fatalist undertone Therefore, why would we do anything? But I want to show you something that's very interesting. To understand this portion of Scripture as to why we place our hope in God, we have to qualify the two sides of grace. Just like a coin has two sides, grace has two sides to consider in this regard. There is what we know as the common grace of God, and then there is what theologians call the salvific grace of God. There is the common grace of God, 
common meaning, common to all, experienced by all. It is what we experience. It's what's common amongst us, not in value, but in scope. And then there's the salvific grace of God, or you might say the saving grace of God. For by grace you have been saved, the saving grace of God. So let's first look at the common grace of God. Everybody experienced common grace, meaning it is common amongst all human beings, no matter who you are, whether you're bad, whether you're good, whether you're evil or wicked, or whether you're saint, it doesn't matter. We all experience this common grace of God. It is common that in, in that it reaches and covers all people without distinction, without race, without class, without gender, without age, without religion. Everybody experiences this grace of God. You cannot earn it. You cannot deserve it. It's yours no matter how wicked you are. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wayne Grudem defines it this way. Common grace is the grace of God by which He gives people innumerable blessings that are not part of salvation, eternal salvation. It is God pouring out His blessings upon fallen man, blessings that are not part of eternal salvation. Blessings for this life that's not part of blessings for that life. Okay? So let me explain it to you scripturally. So you know Adam and Eve were told by God, if, if you bite into that apple, if you... Now, it's not an apple, right? But it's a fruit, it's it. <clears throat> so somebody behind a screen went like, oh, how does he... Why, he thinks it's an apple? <laughs> All right, so Adam and Eve were told, if you partake of this tree... You will surely do what? What will happen? You will die. Yet they kept on living. Now it's nice to say they'll die spiritually, which is true. But they kept on living. And they actually grew to be pretty old. So why did Adam and Eve continue to live even though their sin demanded the death penalty? Why did they keep living? Because of the common grace of God, which allowed them not to be completely wiped out from God's earth by God Himself. Told you not to do it, squash, you're dead. You know? But no, God didn't do that. He withheld. God was patient with them, just as God is patient with even the wicked today. Even though, well, let me, let me give you a clearer picture. I don't know if this is true about you, but I've oftentimes had dreams of becoming a vigilante. And the only reason is because my wife has that dream a lot. <laughs> you know, so uh, oftentimes we watch TV and I'll flip through the channels. And I'm watching, t I'm watching a, like a news bulletin and um, I see a really wicked individual, abuser, committing a really heinous crime. Heartless psychopath and I'm thinking to myself God if I were you I would I would take that guy right now in front of the whole world I'll take my finger and I will squash him don't you ever don't you ever feel that way like you just want to like not give anybody any 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 more patience you have no more patience or grace towards that person yet God does not why not he is patient with everybody. Tina, I want to make sure that TV screen's on. He's patient with everybody, even the wicked. Why? Because of His common grace. Because of His common grace that rests on who? All of mankind. His common grace covers every man. Even though Adam and Eve deserve to die, the question is why did they get to not just live to become old, but they actually enjoyed the life that they had to a degree. They got married. They experienced love. They had children. They had grandchildren. They raised families. 
Then they built homes. Then they built communities. Then they built cities. And they planted, they sowed, and they reaped, and they sold and purchased, and they started making money and built their fortunes. So here's Adam and Eve. All they deserved was what? Hell, nothing else. But they get to live further. They get to live to be old. They get to have families, and they experience love between husband and wife, between children and family. And they get to experience what it is to build a life. And all they deserved was death. Why did they get that? Because of the common grace of God. His common grace that enables you and I also to grow as individuals and to raise families, to develop technology, to build societies, to live somewhat healthy lives if you really want. Possibly can, you might have the chance to save up personal fortunes, to accumulate wealth for our children's children. We get to do all of this, even though the only thing we really deserve is what? Hell. But we get this life. Have you ever wondered why somebody who's saved and served the Lord and feared the Lord dies early, and then some other guy who's a total enemy of God, he hates God, and he gets to live to be 90? God is patient with even the most wicked. He's good to all. His mercies are new every day. Can you say God is good? good. Somebody says, why would God offer common grace to the evil and the wicked? They don't deserve it. Well, the reason they get it is because you also got it and you didn't deserve it. But you got more. Not only did you get the common grace of God, but you got Salvific grace of God, the saving grace of God. God's power that saved, God's power that makes dead men live. Not just dead men survive, <laughs> you know, in the graveyard called life. <clears throat> and since you got all of that, surely God can give them this too. Psalm 145 verse 9 says this, the Lord is good to all. Now that verse makes sense to me. The Lord is good to all. In what way? Through common grace. And His mercies are over all His works. Matthew 5, 44 and 45 says this. And I must tell you, this is the first time this verse has made this much sense to me. I always used to read this verse and struggle with it. But it says this. Jesus speaks. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may prove yourselves to be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Then he says this. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So I get that. I get that. But putting it together means something other to me now. Because he says this. I say to you, love your enemies. That's tough, God. He says, and pray for those who persecute you. That's really tough, God. But he tells us why we need to do this. So that you and I may prove ourselves to be sons of him. So he wants you to love your enemies. He wants you to pray for those who persecute you. So that you can become more like him. Who is a God who shows goodness to the just and the unjust alike. To the believer and the believer alike. He pours out His common grace on all. Even though not all will be saved, all experience this common grace. Just like Adam and Eve experienced something they did not deserve. Somebody said this, grace, or let me start with mercy. Mercy is God withholding from you what you absolutely deserve right now, which is hell. Mercy is God withholding from you what you deserve right now. Nothing good. Grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. So mercy is what you get. Mercy is what is God withholding what you deserve. Grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. 
So I was thinking about this, how God causes it to rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. <clears throat> Do you realize that back in the day, rain meant prosperity, right? Because these guys were all farmers, and when it rained, they, they had a much better chance of having a bumper crop, which meant that they were going to have a lot more sales, right? A lot more to sell. So really, rain meant business is booming. And God says right here that He causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. The good and the wicked receive God's common grace to prosper in this life and to experience goodness in this life, whether saved or unsaved. And so that's what that means. I mean, I remember growing up in South Africa on a farm in the northern part of South Africa, and very oftentimes that area would, would experience extended droughts. And often just before, or just before farmers would lose it all, every bit of what they have, before they go completely bankrupt, before they lose all the animals, before they completely throw in the towel, it would rain. But it wouldn't rain just on this born-again guy's farm or this God-fearing individual's farm. No, it actually rained on everybody's farms. And all the farmers were saved from complete bankruptcy. And so I... So I, in my mind, I have such a clear picture of how God, God's common grace is given to not just the righteous, the unrighteous, not the saved, but also the unsaved. Not just the holy, but also the rebellious. And we oftentimes neglect to be thankful to God for the common grace under which we live today, in this day, in this age. Psalm 145, verse 15 and 16 says, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. God is good to all because He's good. But He's also just. That's why He shows grace to some and others <clears throat> not so when it comes to salvific grace. Burkhoff tells us what common grace accomplishes. Watch this. It says, and I quote, Common grace curbs the destructive power of sin. Common grace curbs the destructive power of sin. I read that and I thought, you and I should have been much worse off right now in light of our sinful past. In light of my sinful past, truthfully, I, I, should, I should be so much worse off than what I am today. Some people have come out of alcoholism. Somebody was able to walk away from their drug habit. Somebody else was able to come out of that abusive relationship that they were in. Uh, how many of you, how many of you are married today, you look at your wife and then you're reminded of your ex-girlfriends and you go like, thank God. You're like sometimes, you, you simply just do not, everybody here, you just don't deserve the life you've got. It's all God. All of it is God. Every bit of goodness you have is God. Every time you had a, you had a brush with death, you just missed somebody out. They, they skipped the red light and they just missed you. But by the grace of God, I mean, I could have been in, in big trouble right now. But by the grace of God, something good just happened. This is the common grace of God. It happens to everybody. Everybody. I've often wondered, like, there's an accident, and then, and then the, the only person that shouldn't, be, shouldn't survive is the one that does survive. God in His, His mysterious wisdom, the Bible calls it the mystery of God's purpose, the mystery of God's will. We couldn't know it, otherwise it wouldn't be a mystery. So here Burkhoff says, common grace curbs the destructive power of sin. <clears throat> Matthew 
maintains in a measure, and I continue reading from Burkhoff, maintains in a measure the moral order of the universe, thus making an orderly life even possible for us. This whole entire world, the earth, this, the ground has been cursed by God. And, and this whole entire human race has fallen into sin, becoming completely depraved. God one time just destroyed everything with a flood. And yet here we are again. Sodom and Gomorrah, 45 minutes drive from here on a good day, 30 minutes. And you go like, wow, God, are you not just wiping us all out? The common grace of God. That's why. So it maintains a measure of moral order in the universe, thus making an orderly life possible. Distributes in varying degrees gifts and talents among men. Promotes the development of science and art and showers untold blessings upon the human race. End quote. Therefore, common grace includes not only physical Blessings like rain, like food, like health, but also blessings in the area of intellect, creativity, society, development. Think about it. God doesn't need a born-again person to exercise His common grace. He'll call a person like Thomas Edison. It's a good thing that we can see while we're getting operated on. <laughs> right? It's a good thing that we can see while we drive at night. It's a good thing. And all good things, everything that could possibly be measured as good comes from God. And all of what we have is from His common grace that we all experience, everybody, no matter how holy or how wicked. The common grace of God is what allows us to now live longer than what people used to live 200 years ago. I love to read dead theologians, right? And like Charles Spurgeon, I loved, back in the day, you get all these, all these people, you read their theology, they hardly say anything about themselves, but when you, when you learn about their lives a little bit, you learn that, well, this was his third wife because the plague took his first wife and his second wife passed away while giving birth to his seventh child. And now he had... He got married again because he had four children left out of his seven children because three of them died. And this, is what the, the, this was the life these people lived. Today, however, <clears throat> that risk is so low. Today, people, you know, I read, I was reading about Charles Spurgeon the other day. Charles Spurgeon, you won't believe how much this guy did in one, in one lifetime. He lived the life of 10 men. And this guy died at the age of 52. I'm thinking, well, that's kind of like almost me. <laughs> You're like, you know, like the, the 60 is the new 40, right? And so uh, 50, I, I think it's the new, the new 30 or 20s. And so we, we don't think of it, but we get to live in a day and an age where people grow to be 80 easily, 90. And on top of that, you can go there without being completely crippled. We live in a great day and age. Think about it. <clears throat> Tina and I were wondering, like if, if you and I could, if we all could go to an airport right now and we could climb into an airplane and choose which era would you like to fly to and you were able to fly to a different time in history, which era would you like to fly to? Which era would you like to live in where you thought that Maybe people, uh, uh, you know, other than when they were growing old to be 900 years and stuff like that before, before God changed that. Which era do you think was more convenient, safer, lower risk, healthier? You know, like you couldn't really go to another era except for this one. People forget, like when, when this country was found, the world was, the world was rough. The world was rough even at that time. The whole entire world practiced slavery. The whole world had slaves. And so life was, life was rough. Life has always been rough. But it's always improved exponentially so. And how has good come to humanity over and over, over, and over exponentially so over time? Through the common grace of God, a Thomas Edison, 
people I don't even want to mention because I can't stand them and I don't, I don't like what they do with like Facebook and stuff like that, you know. But hey, God can use whoever He wants to to create a life. Now people, to create a life that's convenient and productive for us, but people can of course take anything they want and pervert it. That's true. But if it can be used for good, it is good from God because all good comes from God. Today we have conveniences, we have comforts, we have opportunities this world has never seen. We have freedoms this world has never seen. Completely unknown to humanity. We have staggering amounts of personal wealth. Nobody on planet earth 100 years ago, nobody could even have dreamt of there being this many millionaires in one nation. This many multimillionaires. This many billionaires. Nobody could have thought of a time. Nobody could have thought of a time where there was somebody who had like a hundred billion dollars. I mean, imagine this. I don't know if you want to check that out. I'll just use that microphone, Tina. Oh, I am? Okay. The staggering amounts of wealth, personal wealth, that people are able to leave for their children's children, which is a biblical concept, right? What made that possible? It's the common grace of God. Like all grace. All of it is undeserved. None of it's deserved. Coming from a third world country, I can tell you, I love it when I hear somebody saying, God bless America. In what way? With the common grace of God. Other parts of the world might be beautiful, but you can't find a job for three years. And when you do find a job, you earn a a dollar and 25 cents an hour. So what I'm saying is the common grace of God is what allows people to have the opportunities and live the lives and the means that they have to send the gospel out. This This is the common grace of God. This is why We have to be thankful every time we have a convenience, we are comforted, we have an opportunity, we experience our freedom. There's a way for us to support each other. Look at 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8. The Bible says, And God is able to make all grace. Can everybody please say all grace? God is able to make all grace overflow to you. In other words, this grace, that grace, the other grace, and so forth. But guess what? All of it, God can and is able to give to you in an overflowing way. But then it says why? So that always having all sufficiency in everything you may have an abundance for every good deed. Always. Having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. So obviously, he's not talking about salvific grace. He's obviously not talking about the kind of grace that makes a dead man come alive, takes him out of his depraved state and turns him into a son of God. That's not the grace he's talking about here. He's talking about a different grace. He's saying all grace is given to you overflowing measure, and he's then including their common grace, which is the very grace that enables you to have all sufficiency. In other words, stuff, things, means, all sufficiency in everything so that you may have an abundance of it all so you can give them give it as good deeds. So common grace for this life and, of course, saving grace for the life to come. So God blesses you with common grace for this life, but also salvific grace for the life to come. That's how He saves mankind, especially those who believe, because they have more than just common grace. They have salvific grace. James 1.17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Every good, every good thing given and every perfect gift 
is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. There isn't a thing in your life that's good that isn't from God. Not a thing. And there isn't a good thing you have that you deserve. Not a thing. It's all from God. Well, I worked hard for it. Well, you know what? As an Adam, you shouldn't be alive right now. (laughs) You shouldn't even have that opportunity to work hard. And you know what? There shouldn't be any rain coming down upon your farm so that you can have a bumper crop. Yes, you have to work hard because of the curse. But God, because of His common grace, allows you to go beyond just being done away with at this point in time and getting every little bit that you deserve. God says, no, I'm patient with them. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to give everybody my common grace. And then what I'm going to do is, for my son's bride, I will give them salvific grace. I will give them effectual grace, a grace that actually saves them, not just in this life, but in the life to come. So let's talk about salvific grace as we come to a close. On the one side of the coin, we have common grace. On the other side, we have saving grace. And saving grace is God's power that makes, like I mentioned, dead men come alive. Blind men can now see the gospel, God's plan. They can see how much they need a holy God. They can hear His voice. And they absolutely follow because they were given a heart that believes. And when they believe, they are immediately justified in Christ Jesus. And now that they are justified in Christ Jesus, the Bible says, Jesus said, and whom the Father gave me, I I will not lose one. Not only will he take you, but he will keep you for himself. That's why God is good to us. But we see a new goodness today that we have to be thankful for, and that is God's common grace. All of what we have here in this life. Great relationships, great friends, great family, great opportunities, just just great conveniences. Everything that we have, longer life than most people in the history of humanity. And so here we are, grateful for God's common grace, but oh, so grateful for God's saving grace. That He saved us, and now He keeps us for Himself. Saving grace is God's power. The Bible says, and Paul was speaking about saving grace when he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is God's power unto salvation. Not God's power unto a more convenient and expedient life. No, God's power unto salvation. Here he's talking about God's saving grace. I'm not ashamed of this gospel because it's the gospel, the telling of the gospel that releases this effectual saving grace of God. That's the avenue through which God brings His effectual grace. And we can have hope, therefore, in this world because of God's common grace. Thank you, God, for your mercies on you every morning. We don't deserve it but you are patient with us. Thank you, God, for an opportunity, another opportunity. Thank you, God, that we are born in this time and in this age and in this nation. Thank you, God, for all of the opportunities you've given us. And thank you, God, for your common grace because by the the way I drove when I grew up, I shouldn't be here. (laughs) But by God's grace... You're here, you got, you got, you're married, you've got a family. Trust me, you don't deserve that family. But by the grace of God. So we have so much to be thankful for here on this earth. God gives us His common grace. But then it goes to a complete different level when you realize we're also thankful for His grace for eternity. His, His, salva- His saving grace. So it doesn't matter if you look to this we thankful God. Or when we look to that, we're extremely thankful God. We are a grateful people because of His grace and we, uh, we deserve and earn none of it. So let's look at our key scripture once more and now see what is meant by what Paul said. 1 Timothy 4 verse 10, 
It is for this reason that we labor and strive. We labor. This is why we work hard when we go to work in the week. And this is why we preach hard the gospel to everybody we meet. This is why we labor and we strive. Why? Because we have set our hope on this living God. This living God. We have hope in Him. Remember, hope is made possible. Why? Because His Word was given us. And he, His Word can be believed because His Word is what? Comes from His character, which is trusted. We can trust His character. That's why we can believe His Word. Therefore, we have hope in what He has said. And therefore, we have great expectation and we can stand in the midst of rubble and still look forward to tomorrow. It is for this that we labor and we strive. We work hard and we preach hard because we have this hope in this living God who is the Savior of all mankind, common grace, especially the Savior of those who believe. Salvific grace, saving grace. So I set my hope on this living God in two ways. And that's what I want to encourage you to today. Today I want to invite you to put your hope in God in both of these ways. Number one, when I place my expectation on God who helps me live fruitfully in this life. Have a great expectation of what God is going to do through the opportunities that I've taken in this life. Whether it be to, a do to be a doctor or whether it be to be a mechanic. I have great expectation for my relationships. I have great expectations for everything that God has given me in this life because of His common grace. And I receive His common grace on what basis? Because I'm part of mankind. Remember, He's the Savior of who? Mankind. Since I'm part of mankind, that common grace that saves me from everything I mean, I have a life I really don't deserve. He saves me from so much in this world. But then, secondly, I have hope in this God because He redeems me eternally through His saving grace. Why? On the basis of believing. I believe. I believe. I love how one of these old dead guys said, somebody asked him, hey, how do you know? How do you know you're a chosen child of God? How do I know I'm a chosen child of God? He says, it's simple. Believe. Believe in Christ. Put your faith in Christ Jesus. Can you do that? Yes, I'm doing it right now. Well, there you go. You're chosen child of God. <laughs> yeah, it's that easy. It's that easy. So this is what I want to call you to today. That you're putting your hope in the living God in two ways. God, thank you for this life that we have. Thank you for the opportunities in this life that you've given us. Thank you, God, for length of days and long life. Thank you, God, for prosperity. You all know we're not prosperity preachers here. We don't teach that there's a magic wand, that somehow you put something in and here comes the magic wand and something is going to fall out of the sky and somehow your bank is going to be full. We don't believe in that kind of stuff. But what we believe is in the common grace of God that says, hey, the hand of the dil diligent shall prosper. Because God has been gracious to us. So we thank you, Lord, for this great life that you've given us, these wonderful relationships you've given us, wonderful families you've given us, loved ones. Thank you for a long life. But most of all, God, we thank you for your saving grace. Your saving grace. Now, while every head's bowed and every eye's closed, if you are here, you're either in the room or you're watching online, and you're saying, Jacques, I wish I was part of God's family. I feel like I'm standing on the outside looking in. If that's you, you want to make right with God. You have an urgency to be right with God. Let me tell you, let me tell you, friend, that is not you wanting God. That is God making you want Him. That is God has already touched your heart. Otherwise, you wouldn't want Him. It takes God to want God. 
He draws you to Himself. And if you feel drawn to God, then come right now. Come right now. Run to Christ. Run to the cross. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you can do that, it's because God has already blessed you with a measure of faith. He is the author and the finisher of your faith. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. The only way to salvation. The only mediator between you and God. The only possible way of being redeemed eternally. And if you can do that, it's because God's saving grace has touched your life. I want to encourage you that what I'm saying might be comforting in a way if you're coming to Christ right now. But I want to encourage you that this is being told to us. You knock and keep on knocking and the door will be opened for you. You seek and you keep on seeking righteousness in, God's righteousness in Christ Jesus for you and you will find. You ask and keep on asking and you, would be, you will receive the answer. So don't, don't think that as pastor, the pastor's job is to say, okay, you're good, you're saved, off you go, enjoy your life. You're good for all eternity. That's not my job. My job is to call you to knock and keep on knocking, to ask and keep on asking, to seek and keep on seeking, and to test yourself to see if you are in the faith. And if you're not, calling you to Christ in Jesus' name. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. That was the the word given, and that's why faithful men have to preach it. So, Father, I thank you that you bless every person who is turning to you today, turning their back on self, turning their back on the world, turning their back on sin, turning their back on self-effort, turning their back on elevating themselves within their own perspectives inside, but rather humbling themselves before the cross. I pray for every person, God, that's turning to you, that they will knock and keep on knocking, that they'll come to you completely. In Jesus' name, amen.